0: With no further ado, I'm going to bring on the man of the hour, Dr. James Packer, our beloved chair, coordinator, founder of Learners' Exchange, speaking on comparing the Gospels. Thank you, Jim. Well, thank you for your welcome, and uh, I hope... I can keep within about half an hour's period for the presentation. Uh, I should tell you, I think right at the start, that in the program uh, card uh, for this uh, session of um, Learner's Exchange, the title was... uh, Misprinted and it, as indeed it's just been an um, um, mis, uh, misstated in an announcement it's not comparing the gospel it's composing the gospels and um, it doesn't make the slightest difference I think to the presentation or to your mindset as you listen. listen. I certainly hope not. But, as a matter of fact, I thought all this out in terms of composing the Gospels. And um, it's, uh, I think, a little more close to what that title would lead you to expect than it would be if the uh, misprint remained. Okay, enough of that. Now to business. What is all this about? Well, it's going to take us, I'll tell you straight away, into the realm of uh, guesswork to some extent. Though... I must say, when when I finished thinking it through, I felt that the Gospels were even closer to each other in terms of uh, significant links than I had believed when I started. Well, we'll see what you think. Let me dive in and present to you what I wanted to say. Um, you, now, You will see me squinting at um, these papers and you'll wonder what it's all about. The answer is that when you've got my form of eye trouble you can hardly see anything correctly. So you have to be squinting all the time at what you what you want to see and what you have what you want to say right and that's what I should be doing. Um, you will notice that I empty my hands of coffee. You wonder why? Well, the answer is because I have. A magnifier with me and something else that you will see before we're through is Packer playing games with his magnifier. <laughs> Why is that? The answer is essentially the same. Um, with the eye trouble I have, you need a massive magnifier to see what's going on um, in w- w- with, the, with the words, I mean. And then you still have, uh, what shall I say, have difficulty um, for which you need uh, uh, um, to sip coffee every now and then. So that's how it all comes out. Magnifier, coffee, coffee. a sort of notes that I would, <coughs> that under ordinary circumstances I would never be using, and the text of Scripture, which stands, and about which, I want to say, directly, um, a number of things. Um, what's there? a book trade, in the day when the Son of God came to earth, and the century in which the Gospels were written, first century AD, the question doesn't usually get asked. And when people ask it, uh, very few have any idea as to the answer. I spent my life as um, a teacher of theology and I have to tell you this was a question which the learned also overlooked. It 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 doesn't get asked in the textbooks on the on the New Testament and of course not being asked it doesn't get answered either. I think there was a book trade. I'm going to sketch that out. You ask me how do I know? Well, long ago, very long ago, when I was young, uh, I had a classical education. And classical scholars are interested in this subject. And... uh, I think they've gone a lot further into it than New Testament scholars and I think they were right to do so and I think that it's a real oversight in the world of New Testament study that this question hasn't been raised and explored with the same energy, interest and actually knowledge. for there is a bit of knowledge here. Um, In the first century books were certainly put together and uh, that naturally implies that books were sold. Who would have put them together except Salesmen, booksellers, as we call them nowadays. We are used to um, b- book sellers being distinct people from publishers. <coughs> publishers produce the books, booksellers sell them. Um, in the first century A.D., we know that, uh, at least I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you in a moment how it is that we know that books were sold. And, um, well, to be, to be sold, they must first, of course, be written and produced. Question, how were books produced in the days before the uh, what's been called the gutenberg Re- um what's it called gutenberg revolution uh, um where the printing press was invented towards the end of the 15th century well yes in the days before the printing press uh all books were produced by copying. And in cl- classical learning, uh, there is quite, uh, quite enough reference to um, an activity which does, I describe <coughs> thus, uh, Slaves in the Back Room Copying, salesmen in the front room selling but it's a single firm and it's thought of as a single operation and the slaves belong to the guys who are the publishers actually and who are going to sell the books once they're copied. How can I be confident about that? Well, here's where the guesswork that I find irresistible comes in. Uh, Turn to the New Testament and you find that um, one gospel is shorter than the other three and the three are of just about the same length as each other. Same length also is Acts, and uh, even Re- Revelation, the book of Revelation can be brought into the discussion at this point. <coughs> it too is about the same length. In a situation where no restriction is placed on the length at which you write when you've got something to say, well, you wouldn't expect that state of affairs when men with literary skill have something of enormous significance to contribute and yet they their, their books are just about the same length. You suspect something. What do you suspect? Well, as I say, a classical, classical scholars have uh, a general idea of what what operated here. There was a manufacture which produced what were called codices. That's uh, a Latin uh, word which means um, or which stands for blocks of blank paper, which were somehow strung together. Same number of sheets, though. In uh, well, wait a minute. There were two. There were two sorts of codices. Same number of sheets um, in each of the two, but uh, one is shorter than the other. So classical scholars know what's what when they hear people talking about a long codex. A codex is a Latin singular word for this block of paper or papyrus or whatever it was. Um, there's a short codex and there's a long codex. And that's standard throughout the Roman Empire where the book trade operated. and um, any, uh, <coughs> I say, All the books that were copied by slaves in the back room would be copied onto blank paper of either the one length or the other. Now this is where the guesswork comes in in a way that to me is irresistible. I write books, or at least I have written books in the past. And every now and then, the publisher, who virtually promises to print your book once you've written it, says, this book is uh, in a series, and the, the items in the series are all the same length, so you must write either to the length of the short or of the long codex. In other words, the author is uh, committed, you see, to a certain word length. And it's up to him in doing what authors do to produce the, the their products. Um, you have to... Uh, Boil your material down, usually, uh, in order to get it to the get it to the desired word length. How do I know this? Well, you can guess the answer. It has happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you can, uh, I say, you can see it happening. Um, I think, in the in the Gospels, particularly. Um, In the New New Testament. Uh, Well, no. To To my mind, that is a fact which tells you straight away what's been going on, or something of what's been going on in the mind of the writer in each case. And certainly in the four accounts of the ministry of Jesus which we have, um, if you think the ministry itself lasted for three years and there were no long periods of vacation. Jesus as far as we can tell, where we're D D D we're Um, encouraged to think Jesus was teaching all the time. But nonetheless you've got this standard length in three of the four Gospels and um, a shorter version of the same story which was used very clearly as a source by um, two of the other three, that's uh, Matthew and Luke, they took Mark's material and added to it material of their own and thus the text moved from being um, the right length for a short codex to being the right length for a long codex. We don't know how these sheets were bound once they'd been copied (coughs) but we do know about the slaves in the back room copying them. Yes, it was a rudimentary book trade and to my mind (coughs) it makes a great deal of uh, it gives a great deal of help in interpreting the Gospels to know this. How so? Well You look at what the Gospels contain and you learn straight away what the Apostles writing the books regarded as um, the facts that must be stated because they're of primary importance and so you fiddle with them in order to secure the word length that the codex prescribes, long codex or short codex, whichever it is that the bookseller trades in. Now, think back. Um, The four evangelists are regularly spoken of as uh, men of uncommon literary skill although the literary skill varies from one to another the general view and this is uh, this is un- really undeniable the general view is that mark came first and he wrote his story the way he did um, Mark's gospel has the minimum of teaching because it has the maximum of action. It picks up the, be- the beginning of Jesus' ministry and takes him th- takes us through to his- the resurrection. And Mark, in his odd way, as perhaps uh, you've been um you, you you've been told by other sources because nobody doubt, nobody doubts this. Mark ended his gospel very abruptly so abruptly that uh, the that somebody somebody else um, wrote a, a, a how can I say it a postscript to round the gospel of uh, smoothly, but what Mark wrote finishes with uh, the statement that the, wo- the women went away from the tomb frightened, and they did. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's Mark, chapter 16, verse 8. Well. Uh, what is Mar- what is going on here? The, th- the answer, I think, is that Mark is concentrating on action. Uh, and a sub-theme, which he runs all the way through the Gospel, you'll find, is the theme of human perversity. Sin as perversity. And um, so... He ends his Gospel with uh, this abrupt presentation of the fact that at first, now we know from the other Gospels that uh, this didn't last, but at first the women who'd gone to the tomb and found it empty, they were so shaken by what uh, they discovered that though the angel told them to go and tell, they' said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid before the day ended. they got over that, and they were talking to the apostles about what they'd found. That I think is the way to read the material that um, three of the four gospels bring together here. But anyway, this this is Mark's style. action, yes. And the teaching, which teaching of Jesus, which Mark puts into his Gospel, it's the teaching that has to do primarily with his action, actually, as the one who came to earth to be our Redeemer. Well, then you look at Mark and uh, Luke, And you realize they have filled out Mark's narrative. This is why they wrote theirs. They filled out Mark's narrative to add teaching about the Christian life into which Jesus was leading his followers. And so, uh, in Matthew, you have five... Heavy blocks of teaching uh, as if to suggest that Jesus is the new Moses. Um, uh, It starts with the the first block is the Sermon on the Mount, and there are four more blocks, um, and interspersed uh, with the blocks are narratives of things that Jesus did. But uh, it's clear that both Matthew, who sets up these five blocks, and Luke, who brings in yet more teaching that hasn't been uh, narrated in either of the first two Gospels. Yes, Luke, <coughs> uh, Luke is concerned that the teaching that Jesus gave for disciples should be properly represented in the gospel. So um, anyone who reads Luke, I think, will feel well, Jesus is being presented as the great teacher who also redeemed. As if the teaching came first. That isn't the impression that... Um, a careful student of Luke gets, but the impression that but it is the impression that a casual reader of Luke gets, and I think Luke meant it to be that way. The teaching he's saying is terribly important and what about John? Well, John's gospel, we are told there's no reason to doubt this was written when he was an old man, he had developed his own literary style over the years. He was, of course, a Jew who started his literary career in Hebrew, but he had become master of a very striking, simple, thrustful style in Greek. Uh, It's there in the Epistles and it's there in the Gospels, in the Gospel also. And he doesn't appear to be dependent on uh, those who had written before him. No, he's he's an old man adding something which none of the first three Gospels highlighted, namely the truth of the Trinity which gives shape to the work of redemption. The father loves sinners and sends his son into the world to save them. The son comes, he is the mediator, the saviour, and the climax is, as all the three gospels before John had also said, the climax is, that he was uh, crucified, and that he rose from the dead, and that he lives now. And um, well, how does how does John know this? Answer: Because he is John, well, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple to whom then it seems Jesus gave most in terms of personal instruction during his ministry and certainly he's the evangelist who puts most theology into his gospel so that readers will properly understand it. Well, What I've said to you in this uh, rather bumbling way is the natural way, it seems to me, and it has seemed to scholars generally um, since these things began to be thought and talked about, it's, it's, it's the way, the natural way to suppose that our Gospels came to exist. Um, there are uh, details too in the New Testament, which um, confirm this 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 guesswork. Yes, let's call it guesswork. Who was Mark? Well, Mark was uh, Barnabas's nephew, and his mother lived in a big house in Jerusalem. Which became the, the headquarters, it seems, for the early church in its early days. So that when, in chapter 12 of Acts, we read of uh, Peter being miraculously let out of prison. Angel, angel coming and opening the door and so on. Where did he go? Well, the f- place he went was precisely Mark's mother's home. So we have here a family which right from the start it seems, that is before the crucifixion, has uh, become a disciple family to the Lord Jesus. And Mark we think. Who is we? Well, most scholars, because you can't think of a reason for the phenomenon that I'm going to mention, except the uh, reason I'm going to give. The <clears throat> The reason we all think so <coughs> is that Mark, for some f- reason, <coughs> shall I say some funny reason, uh, puts in to his account of Jesus' arrest the detail that there was a young man there and they tried to arrest him and he wriggled out of his cloak and fled naked. Well, I mean, that's what the text says. and I guess we all knew that. Well, what is that detail doing? Um... In books written by people who the classical scholars work with, um, the uh, authors, I mean, of books in uh, Greek and Latin, um, that sort of detail is every now and then put in as an identification of the writer. Who doesn't give his name at the beginning of the book, but does give this detail uh, as, in, as part of his narrative? It's just a, a funny convention, but uh, nonetheless, is very memor- a very memorable convention. I think <laughs> uh, you give you give a personal detail and. Um, in effect, you are encouraging the readers, your readers, to say in their hearts, Oh, that's him, the writer. Mm-hmm. And he is encouraging himself to say, Yes, I put in this detail because that's me. Mm-hmm. see? Uh, Mark is the only one who does this. Uh, Matthew and Luke don't actually give us their names. But, uh, as I say, Mark gives us this detail and the others, well, uh, the bookseller the book gives the name of the writer. What we're, what, we're, what we're seeing as we look at these details is that the four Gospels form a group. Yes, they do. And there are links between them which, if picked up, will give us a better understanding of them than we would have otherwise. Uh, Again, uh, just think. Uh, Luke tells you of action. Uh, He sees Christ's achievement as saviour. And he sets his book up as a story. There is a little teaching in it, but it's the minimum. All right, well, there's that. And then there's uh, Matthew. Matthew, no, was a businessman. He collected taxes and sort of... ...submitted them to the Roman authorities. Uh, He reads Mark and he says, ...this is a, a fine story. It's a true story. I was one of Jesus' disciples, I know. But then, Jesus came to set up a kingdom. He came to be a king... He came to make disciples who, as servants of the king, and he gave a great deal of teaching for the disciples who would be servants of the king. Well, yes, so Matthew spends about half his gospel uh, working in five blocks of teaching. To make the most of the extra space that he was using by writing to the length of a long of a long codex. Luke, by contrast, um, was a doctor, physician, who became a, comp- uh, a, a companion of Paul uh, when Paul was in Troas. Uh, Luke never knew Jesus, but Luke could write. Luke had the instincts of a historian. Luke accompanied Paul, I suppose. Well, this again is guesswork. I'm sorry, but all all of this talk involves guesswork. I, um, you you can't deal with these themes without making guesses somewhere. Uh, the, the, the guesswork here is that uh, Luke accompanied Paul because Paul's health, as we know from chapter 4 of Galatians and one, on, one or two other places, Paul's health was a doubtful quantity and he needed a physician again and again. Okay, so Luke travelled with him um, there came a time when uh, he says, you remember, only Luke is with me. That's towards the end of his life. And there was a time in Paul's life when uh, he was in prison, kept there uh, to, to to gratify the Jews. This is in Palestine. Uh, a period of two years before... Festus came along, uh, as Roman governor, and the guesswork again, but those two years would make a fine time for research, and the guess is that Luke used them in that way, and that's how it is that all the material from Mary and Jesus' family got into Luke's Gospel. Uh, All the material, too, about um, the birth of John the Baptist. Uh, this um, This was the result, I'm suggesting, natural guess, of Luke's research during those two years. And then, as I said, Luke was um, a writer. He could write in the manner of uh, ancient historians and did. (coughs) And he, too, decided... uh, Well, I mean, he was doing the research because he'd already decided, probably, I would think, encouraged by Paul himself, encouraged to gather up further material about Jesus um, and um, retell Mark's narrative with the emphasis on the teaching all, all the way through which is what you've actually got in Luke's Gospel. Um, I've said these things, and they do alert us to something we knew already, namely that the four Gospels, they're wonderfully similar and wonderfully different. Yes, well, each of them is doing a different job. And um, we are enriched, therefore, by having them having them alongside each other and uh, Luke has a second volume Luke Luke got into uh, got into the writing of a long codex on the life of Jesus and then he wants well he sees the need if uh, Jesus is the king and the church is the kingdom he sees the Force that will attach to a narrative of how the gospel got from Jerusalem to Rome. And he researches that and writes that and closes his second book, um, telling how the gospel got to Rome, by saying that uh, Paul when he got to Rome wasn't immediately put on trial. He lived in his own house for two years <coughs> speaking of the Kingdom of God to everyone who came and would listen to him. And there's a, there's a phrase at the end of the, the Greek text which is deliberately awkward, I mean it's awkward as uh, Greek and that again clearly I think is so in order to call attention to it. And the phrase is that uh, Luke was, um, I'm sorry, that, that Paul was teaching about the kingdom for these two years no one forbidding him. An adverbial phrase which hangs on to the end of the sentence in a way that from a literary standpoint is ugly but from a human standpoint is very telling just because it's a hammer blow right at the end of the story. That's the thing which um, most of all Luke wants you to remember. The gospel got to Rome and Paul preached it there, although he'd been uh, sent to Rome uh, in order to undergo a judicial process. nonetheless he was let he was left free for two years to preach the word no one forbidding him. Well, that's a literary effect which uh, Luke, was, as I said, a bit of a writer. Uh, Luke understood and um, we readers should understand it also. This is Luke proclaiming the the triumph of the Gospel in in the ministry of Paul. Okay now the time is gone and more than gone and I must stop but uh, When one stands back and puts all these facts together, the New Testament appears as a wonderfully coherent whole, even more wonderfully coherent than one thought the first time one's read it. And that's the news, shall I say, that I wanted to share with you uh, in this talk. The more you work with the New Testament, the more it appears as a wonderfully coherent literary whole. And uh, I'm afraid there's no time for questions. I now have to leave you with that. Well, I think uh, it's a very good thought to be left with. So God bless and never forget it.